Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time of sweet worship that we have had already to sing of your good news. We pray now that as we open this passage in Mark and as we think about your word, that you would help us to see and understand the goodness of your gospel. Would you help us in the midst of a world that is very busy and very noisy to be able to slow down now and hear from you? Would you do that, we ask, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You're probably familiar with the fact that uh, this past week was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the D-Day invasion, uh, when the Allied forces invaded Normandy, France during World War II. And as I was thinking about that and this text, I think it's hard for us to appreciate how important that military victory was, especially as we get further and further from uh, from that date. Uh, but that victory changed the course of that war. It was a victory that broke the back of the enemy that ensured that the Allies would eventually win the war. It changed the course of history. Some of you perhaps uh, are familiar with the show uh, on Amazon Prime, The Man in the High Castle. If you've seen this show, it's set in the 1960s, and in the show, the Allies did not win the war. It's very disorienting if you've ever seen this. Uh, The show opens, and the opening credits, the song Edelweiss is playing, if you know that song, and it's very eerie. It's an eerie version of Edelweiss, and you see this map, and you see uh, the German troops and the Japanese troops taking over the United States. In this show, there is no uh, 4th of July. Instead, there is VA Day, Victory in America, when the Germans won and we surrendered. Uh, There's a flag that's like our flag, but instead of the stars, there's a big swastika. The D-Day invasion was not just important for World War II, but it was important from that day all the way up to the present. And in the first century world, the world that Mark writes his gospel to, they would have referred to the D-Day invasion as a gospel, a euangelion in Greek. Mark starts his gospel, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in verse 14, he tells us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. When you think about the word gospel, I would assume that unless you're thinking about music, gospel music, you're thinking purely in the realm of religion. But in the first century world, the term gospel, good news, was used for things like military victories. Your side has won a military victory, and that is good news. It's good news for the world, at least according to your perspective. It was used uh, with reference to politics. There's a new world order. There's a new administration. There's a new ruler, and that is good news for the world. Around the time of the birth of Jesus, in the Greco-Roman world, Caesar Augustus had a birthday, and it was proclaimed throughout the empire as a euangelion, a good news. Interestingly, as I was reading about this this week, one scholar noted that the word gospel outside of the New Testament is always in the plural because it's one gospel among many. 
But in the New Testament, this term is always in the singular because the gospel of Jesus, of the Son of God, has no peer and can be compared with no other good news. And this morning, what I want us to do is look at the beginning of how Mark tells his gospel And I'm going to unpack this. Uh, We're going to think about three things this morning. First, that this gospel comes to people in the wilderness. Second, uh, this gospel, this good news is about the invasion of God into our world. And then third, that this gospel demands a response. So uh, let's think first. Uh, The gospel comes to people in the wilderness. If you look at your text, Verse 3, verse 4, verse 12, verse 13. The wilderness comes up again and again and again. This whole opening section of Mark, this theme of wilderness runs throughout the passage. Now, if you weren't reading the Bible, and if I wasn't reading the Bible, when I think about wilderness, I think about camping and how I'm not the kind of person who likes to camp. Uh, Maybe you are. Maybe I have had bad experiences and it has scarred me. I like running. I like being outdoors. I like hiking. Kayaking's cool, all that stuff. But when when the day's over, I want a shower. I want a bed. I want a regular toilet. You know, but Mark, when he's talking about the wilderness, it's not really that sort of camping trip wilderness. This is a Judean wilderness. This is like a desert. This is a space that's characterized by by lack, by scarcity. You don't want to live in the wilderness. It's lacking. It doesn't, it doesn't have the water you need. It doesn't have vegetation. It doesn't have growth. And interestingly, when the Bible describes the geography of our lives, where our lives are lived out, you know what it often says? It says we live in a wilderness. So Abraham spends most of his life sojourning around in a wilderness. Joseph is thrown into a pit in the wilderness before he goes off to Egypt. Moses, after he kills an Egyptian, flees into the wilderness, is in the wilderness for around 40 years as a sheep herder. If you read the book of Numbers, wilderness, 40 years. Uh, David spends the early part of his reign as the true king of Israel, running and hiding from Saul in the wilderness. The wilderness is this place of hardship, of suffering. It's a place of confusion, of disorientation, and of longing. And in a sense, isn't that a good way to describe our world? In the wilderness, we come face to face with the brokenness of our world. In the wilderness, hardships and the realities of life in a broken world, they impinge on our hopes, on our dreams, on what we long for. And in the wilderness, our hearts are often exposed as we long to fill our lives with things to make them feel like they're okay, like they're enough, like they matter. Like Israel, we can doubt God's goodness in the wilderness. In Psalm 78, the writer recounting Israel's history says this, verse 19, they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can he care for us? And in verse 40, it says this, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. So let me ask you, where do you feel the wilderness this morning? What reminds you this morning that the world that we live in is not the way that it's supposed to be? Where do you feel 
stressed or anxious? Where is your heart busy? Where is life really noisy? Where is it confusing and disorienting? Where do you feel frustration? Perhaps with God? Perhaps with a relationship? Perhaps even just with yourself? Because this last week, you experienced the wilderness and you turn from God again. The good news comes to people in the wilderness. And second, it's good news because God is invading this wilderness world. So if you look at the beginning of uh, this gospel, in verses 2 through 3, Mark quotes from Isaiah the prophet this promise that God is going to come and redeem and restore his people. And then you get this really weird guy, John the Baptist, who dresses very strange and he eats strange things. Uh, But he's calling the people to turn back to repent because verse 7, there is one coming who is so much greater than John that John says he's not worthy to get down and take off these dirty, gross sandals of this guy who's coming. And he says in verse 8 that the one who is coming is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, which is to say he's coming to bring life into the wilderness world, which is the exact thing that Isaiah had also said in Isaiah 32, 15, when he says this, the Spirit will be poured out from on high and the wilderness will become a fruitful field. But what I want us to think about is how God does this. How is it that God invades into the wilderness through Jesus? Because it's an invasion unlike any other. He doesn't come with guns blazing. He doesn't come, in a sense, with power out in front. Look at what happens. Verse 9, Mark tells us, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, if you're thinking about this text or you're following along, this should be surprising and kind of weird, right? Because John's baptism is described in verse 4 as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Mark tells us in verse 5 that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to him and they're being baptized by John in this river and they're confessing their sins. So why is Jesus being baptized with a baptism of repentance? Hold that question. I want you to think for a second about bath time with little kids. Some of you are parents, uh, and so you've had a bath time with little kids. Maybe you have little siblings, and so you recall that uh, maybe you're a grandparent, maybe you've babysat. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old, Liam, and a one-and-a-half-year-old, Abby, and when it's time for the bath, you know, the water gets going and the kids go in the tub and you get out the soap and you start scrubbing them down and everything. Now, do you ever think about what's in the water? I mean, you know what's probably in the water, I would assume. Have you ever seen your kids drink the water? And you're like, no. No, we don't drink bath water. Gross. Let me ask you a question. Would you want to get in that water? Imagine getting in that water, but better yet, imagine getting in that water 
in your favorite outfit, you know, your favorite dress or your favorite pair of pants, your favorite shirt, your favorite shoes. Imagine just getting in that water and sitting with them and being with them. What is Jesus doing here? What's in that water that he's getting into? What's in that water theologically, morally, ethically? Lust is in that water. Anger is in that water. Envy is in that water. Think about all the stuff that we try and hide, all the stuff that whenever it kind of like blurps out of us in life, it's like, oh, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. I really wish I wouldn't have said that. Picture the Holy One of Israel, God, in his beauty, in his holiness, coming and getting in that water to be with us. The people are, in a sense, they're coming and they're depositing their sins in that water, and Jesus comes and it washes over him and he takes our ickiness upon himself. And then Mark tells us what happens next in verse 10. He comes out of the water and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. God is invading the world. He's breaking in. Long ago, the prophet Isaiah had prayed something very similar. He had prayed, O Lord, won't you rend the heavens? Won't you tear the heavens and come down? And this is what's happening in Jesus. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. This is probably alluding back to the book of Genesis where the Spirit is pictured like a bird that's hovering over the waters of the original creation. And Mark's saying something like the start of a new creation is happening right here. And then you see what happens in the scene that follows. A voice comes from heaven. You are my son, my beloved. With you I'm well pleased. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and then he's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted. Now, in this scene, this is a familiar story, and I'm going to explain that. It may not be familiar to you, but have you ever had that experience where you're watching a movie, like, for example, a romantic comedy or an action film, and you're like, I know how this movie works. I know the plot line. I know where this is going. This is a similar sort of thing for Mark and for Mark's readers. And let me explain why. Because in the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt, Israel, who is called the Son of God, goes through the waters of the Red Sea, which elsewhere the Bible calls a baptism. And after this Son of God goes through this baptism, they're led into the wilderness where they're there for 40 years. Do you see the similarity? You see, Israel failed in the wilderness. When temptation came, when the trouble hit their lives, they did like what we do. They turned from God. But this is where Mark's story is different. Because King Jesus has passed through these waters of baptism. He's been declared the Son of God whom the Father loves, and then he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. He's reliving this very familiar story, and in a sense, he's taking up all the brokenness of what has come before and what God's people have failed to do, and he is living it out to a different ending, an ending of victory. And this means a lot of things, but one thing that it means is that God cares about the brokenness of the world. 
that he doesn't stand back and he is not distant from the brokenness of the world, but rather he steps right into it. And it also means that, that Jesus gets you, that he, he understands the pull of temptation in the wilderness. And yet the good news is that Jesus in the midst of this. And Mark doesn't really tell us that the wilderness ends. In fact, the theme of wilderness will come up again and again throughout Mark's gospel. And throughout all of this, Jesus is going to keep faithfully aiming his life at God's promises. And he's going to continue to center his life around God's word. And he's going to love God and he's going to love neighbor. And he's going to do this through the wilderness. And he's going to do it through the hardships and the sufferings. And he's going to do it all the way to the cross. And he does this for you and for me. He does it so that we can be welcomed back into fellowship and relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's through Jesus that we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's through Jesus that the words that the Father speaks, if you're a Christian, they apply to you. That God says over your life this morning, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. The gospel is about God's invasion into the world. And two times in Mark's gospel, this word in verse 10 that's uh, translated tore open is used. It's used right here at the baptism, and it's used in Mark 15, 38, after Jesus has uttered this loud cry and he breathes his last breath and he dies on the cross, and the curtain in the temple is torn open. President uh, Barack Obama, 10 years ago, uh, speaking uh, in Normandy for the 65th anniversary, said of the importance of that day, he said this, so much of the progress that would define the 20th century on both sides of the Atlantic came down to the battle for a slice of beach only six miles long and two miles wide. And in a sense, what Mark is telling us is that the hope of the entire world and the entire hope of your whole life is in this one man and in what he has done and how through him God has invaded this cursed, broken, wilderness world. And finally, this demands a response. We read in verses 14 and 15, uh, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom has come because the king is there. In Jesus Christ, Mark has told us, God has invaded this world and when the king comes, when God invades, the one thing that you can't be is neutral, right? You can't be neutral when the king is here. And so Jesus calls us to turn, which is, this idea, which is what is behind the idea of repentance, to turn back, to turn and believe the good news. And the verbs here uh, for repent and believe they're present tense, and they're meant to communicate this ongoing thing in our lives. That, in a sense, it's, it's not just this one-time thing we do, but it's this continually reorienting our lives 
turning again and again and living out of the reality of this singular good news. Uh, I remember listening uh, recently to uh, Tim Keller, a pastor up in New York City. Some of you may be familiar with him. Uh, He was talking about when the gospel really broke into his life with power. And he was a college student. He was at a retreat, and the speaker uh, said this. Think about this. If the distance between the earth and the sun, right, 92, 93 million miles, is the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the next star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And the distance from, our, from one end of our galaxy to the other would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And if our galaxy is just one little speck in this universe, and if there is a person who holds all of this together by the word of his power, by his little pinky, in a sense. And if this person has invaded the world and has suffered with us and for us to redeem us, is this the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Is is that the kind of person that gets a piece of you, a religious piece of you, but that's it? A life of repentance and faith in the gospel is a life where we're continually and joyfully, because of what Jesus has done, turning our lives again and again and again, recentering them around the singular good news and the singular hope of our lives and of the whole world. Let's take a moment uh, to pause now for silent confession, uh, and then I will uh, lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, um, help us to remember the good news of the gospel. Lord, help us to see the world in our lives through, through the lens of what we've just read in Mark this morning. And would you, we pray, um, help us to joyfully turn again and again and center around this good news and around the person of Jesus. Would you help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the uh, good news of the gospel from Romans 8, chapter 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.